I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Today, the Vancouver Sun's Darn McQuana sits down with reporters Lori Culbert and Dan Fimano to discuss their exclusive investigation into a former BC jail guard alleged to have sexually abused 200 inmates. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and please leave us a rating and a review. Today, more than 200 former BC inmates have filed civil claims in court alleging they were sexually abused by retired prison guard Roderick David McDougall over his 21-year career when they were teenagers or young men incarcerated for relatively minor crimes. The plaintiffs claim the acts left them angry, confused, often compounding pre-existing drug and crime problems, and spiraling them into even more difficult lives. In defenses filed in some of the more recent civil claims, the provincial government denies it knew or ought to have known inmates were being sexually assaulted during McDougall's career, which spanned from 1976 to 1997. The defenses also denied McDougall sexually assaulted the plaintiffs or that its correction system did anything wrong. McDougall, now 66, declined to comment on the civil suits or any of the allegations against him when contacted at his Metro Vancouver home. To be clear, Roderick David McDougall has maintained his innocence. Vancouver Sun and Province investigative journalists Lori Culbert and Dan Fumano analyzed hundreds of pages of court documents including lawsuits, judges' rulings, testimony transcripts, and expert reports to piece together the little-known allegations against McDougall. Dan, let's start with Ocala. What was the prison like in the 1970s and 80s? From what we heard from uh, former inmates who spent time at Ocala in the 1970s and 80s, they described it as, uh, well, one inmate described it as a dungeon. He said it was a big, huge uh, stone building uh, with big holes in the windows that were big enough for pigeons to fly in and out. So there would be pigeons inside the jail at all times of year. He said it was absolutely freezing cold in the winter in there. There were riots, famously, at Ocala and uh, other reports of problems. Um, The famous BC broadcaster Jack Webster visited Ocala in the late 1980s. And he said at that time that when he looked at the conditions there, including the the solitary confinement and stuff like that, he said it, it didn't seem like something that belonged in the 1980s. It belonged to a different previous century. And that's where Roderick David McDougall worked as a guard. What did you learn about him and the start of his career? Well, we learned that at the age of 23, he had worked at a grocery store and had was looking around for different employment and had an interview with BC Corrections and started on the very same day at Ocala as his interview with BC Corrections. We learned that he was a hard worker, but that... Fairly early on into his employment, co-workers started raising concerns about his interaction with some of the young inmates. There was absolutely no evidence at the time, but they had concern about the potential of some type of sexual abuse happening. And BC's prison system was already under the microscope when McDougall was hired. Is that correct? 
So just to put this into context, too, at right around the same time that McDougal was hired, uh, Justice Proudfoot had just completed a very large inquiry, a provincial inquiry, into alleged abuse between male jail guards and female inmates on the female side of Ocala. So here we have... Um, Mr. McDougal starting his employment on the male side right at this time when people were talking in the province about the impropriety, of course, of sexual interactions happening between guards and inmates. So perhaps in that context, his co-workers um, were a bit curious about what they saw as a pattern emerging. Uh, McDougal, uh, fairly early into his employment, became in charge of granting day passes and parole eligibility, transfers to lower security facilities. And they would notice that when the older inmates would go into his office and the door was shut, that the older inmates would talk to McDougal for a very short period of time about their applications. Whereas when the younger inmates, those who were teenagers, still or in their early 20s were behind closed doors with him, those interviews might last up to 45 minutes. Did McDougal face any discipline during his time as a prison guard? So we know, I mean, the short answer appears to be no, um, that there were some letters put on his file later on in his career that he would be suspended for a day or two. But there did not seem to be, especially in the early days, much response from management. And that's really where we see some fascinating stories from his co-workers taking uh, matters into their own hands. Dan, how were McDougal's co-workers reacting to him around this time? Well, the co-workers, as Laurie said, had uh, noticed this strange pattern uh, that he would spend a lot more time, you know, upwards of 45 minutes with the younger inmates, most of whom would have been in jail for the first time. They were teenagers or early 20s, and they tended to be the ones that were smaller in stature. So fellow guards confronted him and told him they didn't like him having an office with a door that closed, and they thought there was no reason for him to have a, a door that closed. So I'm trying to remember here, Laurie, they took they took down the door, and then they, or they replaced it with a door that had a window so that everybody else could see into the office. And then McDougal responded by uh, covering that window up with a curtain. And this is all was given in testimony at uh, one of the civil trials from a former guard. So after McDougal put up this curtain to block the view into his office, uh, a couple of fellow guards were quite upset and they went in there and they tore it down with their bare hands and tore it up and threatened him not to do that again. It's this really, I mean, when you, when you sift through hundreds of pages of court documents, which is what Dan and I had to do to tell this story, you know, it can be quite dry, but it's just this incredible exchange in this testimony from a former guard named Frank Beauchard, who said he was the night supervisor one night. Um, and this would have been three or four years into McDougal's employment where he said six other guards came up to him as a night supervisor and asked his permission to gather this door that they had made in the carpenter's room at the prison, a door with, with a huge window in it. And, you know, it's this back and forth between he knew he was kind of breaking the rules to allow them to bring this new door in. But at the same time, they were all pretty frustrated. And these six uh, guards came and put this door up. Uh, and it was documented that management knew uh, that other guards were coming in and tearing down the curtain and the file folder that was being used to cover the window. Again, things continued as usual at the at the jail. 
What finally ended McDougal's career? Fast forward, he worked for 21 years as a prison guard in four different jobs for in four different centers. As I said earlier, he was noted for being hardworking. And when he got to Alouette, uh, another jail, he made a complaint to management that he had seen two fellow guards beating up an inmate. And it kind of broke that code of, you don't say bad things about your co-workers. And then he also raised concerns about other guards allegedly bringing drugs into the prison. And so his co-workers really didn't like McDougal at this point. He had this questionable past. He was raising problems for them in current day. And so they started uh, harassing him, slashing his tires, putting up nasty things about him inside the jail, at one point sending a dead rat to his office. And even though management transferred him to different facilities, this harassment continued. And so ultimately what happened in 1997 is that McDougal sent a complaint to management saying, my coworkers are harassing me. And this was the beginning of the end for him. It had nothing to do with the allegations of the sexual abuse. Management hired the now retired chief of the Delta Police Force to investigate the harassment allegations that McDougal had complained about. And in the process of investigating those harassment allegations, uncovered what appeared to be a long list of concerns by his fellow co-workers about alleged abuse. Was a criminal investigation launched? What happened then was the the retired cop who had done the investigation, he handed in his investigation, the, the report, which suggested this concerning pattern. He found that McDougal had probably sexually misconducted himself with at least one inmate and suggested there, there was a concerning pattern and McDougal should not be dealing with inmates. The very next day, McDougal handed in his resignation letter. So McDougal was never fired or formally disciplined for any of that stuff through corrections. But he resigned. And then it was, would have been a few years after that, that victims started coming forward and spoke to the police and um, or spoke with guards, I guess, and then the police. And then he was arrested in 99 and charged with 17 offenses against nine inmates. And, uh, and then he was convicted in 2000 of nine offenses including sexual assault and extortion against five inmates. Uh, so yeah, he was convicted and eventually sentenced. McDougal's been named in a number of civil lawsuits. Can you describe the size and scope of the civil action taken against him and his former employer, the province of BC? So following the criminal conviction in 2000, inmates started coming forward and filing civil suits, uh, naming both McDougal and his former employer, the province of British Columbia. And that number, and this is just what Dan and I were now able to determine with this set of stories, that that number of civil suits has grown to 200. So as most people know, uh, sexual assault is a vastly underreported crime. But so, but what we have right now is two hundred former inmates coming forward and alleging that they were sexually abused uh, while incarcerated uh, during McDougal's employment. Roughly one hundred of those suits have been settled, either with payouts from the province, with out of court settlements that are private that we don't know exactly how what the deals were arranged, and some were dismissed. And the other 100 are still remain before the courts. In the investigation, you also identify a person by the name of John Smith. How did he come across McDougal? 
So John Smith is a pseudonym. We're not identifying him because the civil courts have determined that he was a, a teenage sexual assault victim. So his name is being protected. But he was a 16-year-old inmate in Ocala when he wanted to ask for a temporary leave to visit his sick grandmother. And the person in charge of granting that leave was Mr. McDougall. And what a civil court judge found is that Mr. Smith was, in fact, granted that leave in exchange for allowing a fellatio to be performed on him. Later, when uh, Mr. Smith wanted to uh, apply for parole, again, he was told that if fellatio could be performed upon him, that he would get that parole. And, and that's, in fact, what happened. Then he kept that secret. But like many of the people who Dan and I interviewed, it was, um, it's a very difficult experience. Say what you will about young men incarcerated. Perhaps there's been a crime committed. Perhaps there's a drug problem. But what they will tell you is they were in there to serve their time and adding the element of alleged sexual abuse on top of that really sent many of their lives spiraling. Was Smith's contact with McDougall isolated? What's important to know about Smith is that he was found himself back in jail 10 years later and found himself facing Mr. McDougall again as the person who was in charge of granting day paroles and, and that type of thing. He also witnessed, he testified in court, other young men, men who looked much like he did 10 years earlier, leaving Mr. McDougall's office, and he said, quote-unquote, with a look on their faces that he recognized, and he, and he finally, he said, needed to speak out, so found a guard that he trusted and an RCMP officer and started talking about the alleged abuse that he had faced. So then in the midst of his civil case, the judge uh, awarded him $20,000 finding that he had, in fact, experienced that abuse. And that $20,000 decision, was that appealed? It was. It was appealed by Mr. Smith's lawyer. And the argument was that the lower court judge hadn't taken into consideration the all of the evidence on how the alleged abuse had affected his life in the long term. And the BC Court of Appeal, there was a unanimous ruling that, in fact, a new trial should happen because, you know, more evidence should have been taken into consideration in finding that judgment. However, whether or not Mr. Smith would have been awarded more money from the court remains unknown because that new trial was never held. And and, and we don't know the reason for that. And his lawyer said she was not able to explain it because of solicitor-client privilege. But we do know that many of these men had very troubled lives. What did you discover about the latest court claims? Yeah, so that's, as Laurie had mentioned earlier, you know, of the 200 or so civil claims that have been filed against McDougall, about half have already kind of been resolved one way or another, whether adjudicated upon and the provinces made payouts or they've been settled out of court or some have been dismissed. So out of those remaining outstanding cases, there's uh, several dozen are being handled by uh, one Vancouver lawyer. Um, and what he's doing now is um, basically they're trying to bring 61 former inmates together 
with potentially more to come and to do a, a sort of joint claim together. So it's kind of similar to a class action lawsuit. This is called a representative action. And they, uh, they have filed a claim last month uh, in October in the BC Supreme Court. And so that's just been initiated and it will still need to go before a judge and a judge would need to sort of uh, okay it to let it proceed. But that's what they're trying to do at this stage is band together as a sort of group. This might be difficult to fully comprehend, but how important is this proceeding to the claimants? I mean, some of these guys have been waiting for years and years and years. Like some of them have filed their civil claims more than 10 years ago. And, you know, the alleged abuse is alleged to have happened decades ago. I have spoken with at least a couple of people who are listed in the new action as pending claimants who have said that for them, it is important to try to get some closure. They know that other people, some of the other pending plaintiffs have died waiting for their day in court. The claim that was filed in court last month in October said that that there were at least six people in that group that had uh, died and been removed from their claims. Um, it said that many of them had died because of results or as a result of trying to self-medicate and their addictions. So some of these people have died while they're waiting for a day in court. I think I should just add to that that um, the, pro- the two co-defendants in this um, representative action, which is McDougall and the province, have not filed responses yet to this particular representative action. The province has routinely responded to all of these individual civil cases and for the most part takes the position A, that the sexual assaults didn't happen, but B, if a Supreme Court judge found that the sexual assault did happen, that the province admitted vicarious liability as the employer. It takes the position that it could not have known um, what McDougall was allegedly doing, but if the judges found that he was, in fact, doing anything improper, that it would pay up on his behalf. McDougall himself has responded to very, very few of these civil cases. He's responded to a small handful that we could find, and uh, he's maintained his innocence, as he did throughout his criminal trial, it should be noted. Dan and I reached out to him for this story. We did speak to him very briefly, and we, he declined to uh, speak to us for this story. Dan, have all of these civil accusations sparked a new criminal investigation? Yes, actually, according to the notice of civil claim that was filed in court last month, that representative action, there were actually two subsequent criminal investigations following uh, McDougall's conviction in 2000. That notice of claim says that in 2002, RCMP had forwarded a report to Crown Counsel, and at that time, the prosecution service declined to approve additional charges. And then later on in 2010, the RCMP forwarded another report to Crown Counsel, according to the representative action. And then three years after that, in 2013, the uh, BC Prosecution Service decided not to press further charges again. And we uh, spoke with the BC Prosecution Service about that, and they confirmed for us that, yeah, the Crown did receive that additional report to Crown Counsel from the RCMP. And uh, that 2013 decision, they said, the decision not to press charges was related to 
the available evidence and they said that it did not meet the BC Prosecution Service's charge assessment standard. So that's why no charges were approved. In your story, you asked, how could this happen? That's not an easy question to answer. What should listeners know? I mean, we've learned that Justice Patricia Proudfoot in 1978 raised questions and concerns uh, looking into issues at Acala 40 years ago. And she made a series of recommendations, and some of which were addressed. And among them was to have some type of independent external oversight in the form of inspections at the jail so that it's not just all inside players involved. Fast forward to 2016, and the BC Ombudsman, Jay Chalk, released a fairly critical report that said that the provincial government had, uh, in fact, done no inspections of BC jails for a series of time in the the 2000s. Those inspections were restarted again in 2012, but he found that they were missing any type of an external inspection element that was really part of international requirements for how to properly safeguard what's happening inside jails. By this time, that's become the internet, the United Nations international standard for the minimum kind of treatment of prisoners. And so what the ombudsman, Jay Chalk, specifically said in his recommendations is that the province should adopt these certain portions of what's called the Nelson Mandela rules. And it's all about having some type of um, external group, like a human rights organization, perhaps like the Red Cross, do unannounced random inspections of jails in addition to what all of the government inspections are are being done. And the province promised that they would find a way to implement those rules in March of 2018. Mr. Chalk released another report recently saying, hey, guess what? That hasn't happened yet. And he's frustrated that it hasn't happened. The provincial government told Dan and I for this story that they're close to implementing those rules. But as the ombudsman said, it's been several years since his report and that hasn't happened yet. So you ask how this could happen and could it happen again? It's really difficult to answer that question. There's obviously been improvements within the jail system clearly over the last 40 years, but there are advocacy groups we talked to for this story and others who would say there's just, there's still a little bit more that needs to be done. And, and their point is, you know, why should the general public care? You know, what happens inside the prisons if, you and I aren't inside that prison. Why should we care about what happens inside? And the really, there's a, there's a long answer, but the really short answer is because those inmates are going to be released one day. And we expect them as society to be released as stronger, healthier, hopefully law-abiding people. Let's leave it there. Lori, Dan, thank you. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to Darm McQuana, Lori Colbert, and Dan Fomano. More from them at VancouverSun.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.